Alrighty, Ronin Rescue Cast number nine. No fancy music this time, just gonna plow straight into it. We've had a bit of delay in some of these. I apologize, we've been busy. We've got a few of them that'll be coming out within a couple weeks of each other here, so stay tuned. I know I've said that before, but this time we actually mean it. This one here, number nine, is gonna be directed more at our staff. It's gonna be about the rescue field plan, the rescue plan field plan that we send out with our guys and our girls on site to do this when we're doing rescue standby. It's not to say other people in industry won't get something out of this. I think people that work industry absolutely will. Now kind of the disclaimer, and a bunch of my guys will be hitting stop immediately after I say this, I'm sure. But the disclaimer here is, this is still technical rescue. No matter how simple we try to make this plan, you still need to have some competence in technical rescue. If you're just here to collect patches and wear cool t-shirts, go find yourself another job. It's as simple as that. This still requires some amount of wherewithal, some amount of thought, and some amount of skill. So, that being said, we have Jason here with us again. He's worked on this document for a while, so it'd be good to have him. We're gonna go through the document kind of line by line to talk about why we have certain things in there. And to start with, we'll throw Jason right on the spot and say, who's this for? Who, who do we expect to be using this thing? This document is directly uh, designed for Ronin personnel. It is not designed for clients to take and use. It's not designed to be used to create a rescue plan for our clients, which we will be creating a template for that at, at a later time. It is meant to be pulled out when we get on site day one to establish our rescue plan for a confined space entry. Excellent. So who on our team's doing this? Which, which member is going to be doing this? So this is specifically to be completed by the rescue team leader. Uh, with the new levels of qualifications we have within Ronan, it's very clear who rescue team leaders are. And there's a good reason they have earned that title. It's not just something given out because of TI. It is because someone's earned it and not just earned it in the past, they continue to earn it. We've always been really big on keep your skills relevant. If you don't, you're not worth a hill of beans to anyone. So right away, this form starts out on the title in the header, confined space rescue field plan, very, very, um, a very clear identifier what it is. Then the space name, the date the plan is completed, and the address location of the space. That's critical because when we go into confined space, our hazard assessment, our entry procedure, and our rescue plan must be for that space, must be for what is expected to happen in that space and what is covered as a group in all the documents. If it's not, then you need to stop and you need to sort out your paperwork. By writing down the space name, addressing that, it's another way to tie this document to the others. Immediately below that is a space for the name of the rescue team leader, the Ronin rescue team leader. That's who's filling out this document. That's who's taking responsible for the rescue. That's who's taking responsible for the safety of the people working that day if an incident was to occur. Okay, so in there, 
Uh, underneath that, there's a yellow highlighted box. Talks about the scope. Talks about that this is being completed by the rescue team leader based on the hazard assessment, the entry procedures, a bunch of other documents. Now, we get questions from our rescue team leads a lot of times saying, do we need to bounce this off the CRSP or the qualified person that wrote the hazard assessment? Or if I'm not altering the hazard assessment, which I shouldn't be because I'm not a qualified person, is it okay just writing this? So what's the thought process back on that? First of all, the regulations do not state that a qualified person in regards to doing confined space hazard assessments needs to do the rescue plan. Yeah, a generic qualified person, someone who understands rescue, needs to write the rescue plan, understands confined space, needs to write it. But technically, the same person who did the hazard assessment entry procedure does not need to do the rescue plan. Uh, now, the one thing, and this is why it says in this document under the scope that this has to be done in a... Um, Conjunction uh, with conjunction, thank you, uh, with the hazard assessment and entry procedure is because if, for example, the hazard assessment says you need to wear a respirator or wear Tyvek, well, you better include that in your rescue plan. Uh, we've always said for a long time that rescue is work. Rescue is not rescue. Rescue is not all the glory. Rescue it's is the East Coast job. Yeah. That's what the East Coasties call it. It's a job. It's a job. And it, it, it's work. And we need to protect our rescuers the same as we protect our workers. Now, if you might add something extra, and we'll talk about fall protection later, as long as it's not associated with atmospheric contaminants, um, with respiratory protection, with maybe messing around with isolation points, major things like that, then if you're not doing those things, then you're okay writing the rescue plan without uh, talking to your project manager or a qualified person. However, all that being said is if you have some doubt, please contact your project manager. And after a couple times of contacting us, even if you don't need to, you'll learn. That's fine. It's the same as fire. We'd rather have someone call us on a medical call and we show up and we're not needed than someone not calling and they end up getting visited by the coroner instead. So just to summarize that, do not change the hazard assessment, the intent or any of the parts of it. They're, that's not your scope. You are not a qualified person. You are simply writing the rescue plan under that part. If something in the hazard assessment needs to change in your opinion, contact your project manager. They'll get hold of our CRSP and work it out in the back end. Absolutely. And you also have to make sure while you're writing the rescue plan that the actions you're asking your rescue team to do are not in the face of the intent of the entry procedure as well. And again, so here I'll give you an example. If we're going to have to go in and cut inside of a space in order to extricate, then you better be talking to the qualified person if you're writing the RP because you're adding an additional hazard into the space. Absolutely. And if you think that's one of the cases, you know, and that, that's where the project manager plays a big role even before assigning people to the field for a job like this. What do we have? What are the type of instances we may have just from a phone perspective? And we need to try to head that off even before you get on the site as a team lead. But if you notice something like that, that there's something where, as you said, Mark, we need to cut, we need to grind. There's a lot of things we have to consider before we can just allow that. We do not want to be on scene where someone gets hurt and we go in to rescue them 
and now someone needs to come rescue us. Uh, and that's quite common. There's a lot of videos online about firemen cutting into something and blowing everyone up. Okay, and that's bad. We try not to do that at Ronan. Bad. <laughs> All right, so moving down, we're going to move into section one of this plan. This is laid out in sections. It talks about your hierarchy of rescue here. Try to injure or, sorry, try to injure. Try to assist the self-rescue attempt of the injured worker. If that's not possible, then we're moving in either to a non-entry external rescue or an entry internal rescue. And Jay, can you just give us a couple breakdowns just on those two topics? So the rescue plan overview has some set things that are relevant to every single plan. And for example, we evacuate all other spaces um, if we're overseeing multiple spaces. So uh, for example, big sites like when we're working um, some of our bigger petrochemical clients or uh, pulp and paper type clients and there's numerous entries going on, the first thing we have to do is if we have a rescue in one, we have to get everyone out of the others. Maybe while someone gets out of one of the others, they get hurt too. Now we're in a triage situation. Which one do we have to do? So that's the first step no matter where we are. The second step no matter where we are is exactly what Mark said, is we have to encourage the entrance self-rescue attempts first. You know, by even doing an external rescue, we are intervening with that person getting out and we may create new hazards doing that. Now, when you look at your rescue, are we going to do a non-entry rescue where the guy's going to be hooked up the whole time, uh, have a mechanical system there to lift him out, as well as staying in the cone of happiness below the entry way or below the access. The cone of happiness typically is uh, 22 and a half degrees out from center on either side from the pinnacle of the tripod or your AHD. Not to be confused with the cone of silence. <laughs> yes, not to be confused with the cone of silence. Um, now, an entry rescue means the guy's going in and disconnecting. We need to go in and, and get them out of there. So this is something that should be decided before work even begins. So right in the rescue plan overview, to give the big 10,000 foot view of what we're doing, you need to check off, is this gonna be a non-entry external rescue or an entry? Keep in mind, an entry internal rescue may still have an aspect of non-entry. So we have a big tank, the guy's going down the ladder. Well, at Ronan, whenever someone's going down a ladder, he's hooked up to Fall Pro. When he gets to the bottom, he's going to disconnect. Overall, I would call that an entry internal rescue, um, not a non-entry, although it has a small window where we may be able to get the guy from the outside if that incident was to occur while he's on the ladder. Uh, Quick question for you, Jay. I'm going to jump right in there. Yeah. Now, okay, it's a six-foot ladder. We're going to have this person get hooked up. Does that seem a little bit out to lunch there? Or what's, what's the thought process behind that? So why did the client hire us? What are we there for? Mitigate a problem or stop the problem from occurring to begin with. Absolutely. Um, and the whole point is we send a certain amount of personnel based on the type of rescue we may have. So, you know, at Ronan, we've always, we haven't seen ourselves just as the ones that come running in when the siren comes off. We like to be involved in the entry, throughout the entry. And the reason for that is not only provide value add to the client and all that other good business stuff, but the other point is, is we're there constantly mitigating potential incidences, whether to simply stop them from occurring altogether or to reduce their consequence. 
there's been lots of cases, uh, even one in BC within the last couple of years, where a guy fell off a ladder at about six feet. Um, he fell, he spent about an hour on his back in water while they figured out how to get him out of there. The second the guy falls, even six feet from a ladder, we now need to send two people in to rescue him. Minimum. Minimum. Um, and he needs to be on a spine board, which may or may not even fit out the manhole. So we have a, a, a duty to manage out falls whenever possible, whether it's six feet, 10 feet, 50 feet, anytime an entry goes into space, even if it's not mentioned in the entry procedure, Ronan hooks him up, gets him down the bottom of the hole, and if he needs to disconnect, he can disconnect them. Okay. Another one in section one here that's of interest is MSDS are now termed SDS, your safety data sheets. Why are they listed in there? Like, who cares? So that's listed under possible expected injuries um, as a reminder. So under possible expected injuries, we have to look at all the work activity that's going on. You know, we, we do that as qualified people too. What are all the hazards that could impact a worker? What's the likelihood they're going to and what's the consequence if they do? And we make sure the right things are in place. Uh, so, and chemicals need to be included in that. Often we get on to say, oh yeah, we got the SDS, we know what to do. Does the rescue team know what to do? What happens if that person was to be exposed? Maybe there's some special instructions that are the first aid measures in that SDS that you need and you don't have on site, which you better make sure you have on site to take care of that person. So we need to understand what's going on, what chemicals are being used. Also, I strongly suggest, I know logistically it may not always be possible, that there's a few copies of the SDS there so that when that person is being transported to a higher level of medical aid, I can send the SDS strapped to his chest. Tape it on, send it with them. It's an exact chemical. It's not a guess on the computer for the doctors and they know exactly what the person's been exposed to. That's just providing thorough services. Okay, that brings us into closest hospital, distance, proximate time to get there. I'm going to speak real quickly on this, just directly to our staff. Some of our staff, as you get into the higher level qualifications, you can end up with quals, medical quals, that may be beyond the first responders that are actually going to initially show up on your site. This is one of those things where you need to discuss with the first responders that arrive, especially if you're in a remote location, to ensure that they're okay taking over from you on a level of care you provided. A couple of things immediately come to mind. Number one, NPAs in a person as opposed to an OPA based on uh, you know, bringing them out of the space if they're unconscious so the OPA doesn't fall out using an NPA in that case. Does the fire department, the paramedic should? I mean, that is a NPA is a standard play in the paramedic world, but fire departments may not be comfortable with an NPA in as opposed to an OPA, something you need to communicate with them when you, they arrive. The other one is combat application tourniquets. Uh, we'll have those in our, or have those in our intervention kits. Our intervention kits, as we just talked about earlier, are designed for critical interventions to get someone either to the ground or out of a hole. And then we move forward from there, either turning them over to the OFA on site or to the medic on site, or if need be, we help in the transport chain until we get to further or advanced medical care. 
If that OFA or if that initial first response isn't comfortable with a combat application tourniquets, that might be something else where you are going to have to stay with that patient in order to provide that level of care until we arrive with someone that does. So don't think just because it says here, turn them over. Think about when you turn them over, have that conversation. Most of the times when we're working in a major metro area, this is not going to be a concern. It's more in these times, I'm thinking of that remote barge job, for instance, up northern Vancouver Island when we're out in, at sea, basically. You know, we're turning them over to a camp medic. They may or may not have those skills. That's something to discuss. Make sure everybody, you know, that who's who in the zoo at the beginning of this, everybody knows what's going on and what their expected role is should something occur. So, Segues very nicely into section two, which talks about roles. Now, to throw this back at Jason, because you can look at this and we do get some feedback on here. It's like, well, we got a bunch of roles here, and they say the same thing almost a bunch of times. Like the first one says, you know, rescue leader, standby person, rescuer, first aid. Is that the same dude? And then the next one's rescue leader, standby person. So this is when you look at it and you go, what are these roles referred to, Jay? So the first thing to discuss is is the intent behind this. The intent behind this is the rescue team um, and how a rescue team can be put together and grow or be reduced is similar to the ICS system, which you guys should all be aware of. Um, you know, you can have a call where a single fire pump shows up, takes care of it. Oh, geez, we have a bigger incident than what we need. Roll a second pump and roll the rescue truck. Oh, geez, we have a really big incident and we got structure fire, two alarm, three alarm fire. And now what you'll find when you get on site, one guy that was doing all the roles, such as a single pump response, uh, the captain, IC, safety, everything, those jobs are now split up based on the demands of that incident. So same for confined space. You know, we may have a single entry uh, where a guy is going down in the hole, he's staying hooked up the whole time, he's right in the cone of happiness, um, and really all we need is one guy on the outside. That guy on the outside can be the rescue leader, the standby person, the rescuer, the first aid. He can do it all. However, if that guy goes in the hole and he's not staying in the cone of happiness when rescuing from the outside, or he's disconnecting, now we need an additional rescuer. So one guy would be the rescue leader slash standby person, and we'd need a second person to be a, a rescuer slash first aid to go in the hole to get that person out of there. Let's say the scene gets even bigger, uh, and now we have a potential for a spinal injury, or the, the space is designed in a way that one guy can't lift the guy over the pipes. We need to send two people in. Well, now we have a rescuer number one and rescuer number two. Let's say it gets even bigger and we need supplied air. Well, a common thing is we have someone assigned to manage that air cart. So what you need to do is you need to decide what are the, the resources that are required to effectively respond to emergency in that confined space. And then you need to check off the roles that make up your team. So what a novel concept. What you're basically saying is pre-plan it, figure out what the problems are going to be and what the solutions look like and then assign it. Absolutely. And there's a check for you guys in here. So based on the far left-hand column you'll see in the rescue plan, there's little check boxes beside the role. Okay. At the bottom below that 
is a field that says minimum number of personnel required for this rescue plan. The amount of boxes you have checked off should match that number below. Remembering, and I want to stress this, if you guys are on site and there's a potential fall into the space, whether 6 feet, 10 feet, 12 feet, 5 feet, the guy needs to be hooked up. If he can't be hooked up, right away we know we need two rescuers and now I got my rescue leader outside. Right away and I'm in a, a three-man team scenario. Okay, so that's something that needs to be remembered in there. It's something that needs to be written down. It is certainly something that the regulatory authority is going to look at when they show up there and go, okay, you've pre-planned this. You've told me how many people you need. And yeah, we got that many people sitting around outside. Absolutely. So section three, rescue method or the system to be used. Now, this is where we start getting into the meat and bones of it. And this is where we start still calling this technical rescue. We have to decide non-entry or entry horizontal, vertical, or a combination of both. How many feet of rope do we need? Are we gonna be hauling someone more than 10 feet? Now we're getting into, do we need them to be on a two-line system? Or is the fall protection hazard mitigated or we're not into a fall protection hazard where we can go in and get them on a single rope system? Remembering in the total distance of rope as well, where if we go up through a 10-foot tripod, with an eight foot deep space, now we come back down, we rig down to the base or something, all of a sudden we just put in 28 feet, throw in 10% for knots, we need 30 feet of rope, we haven't even built a mechanical advantage system. So these are the things we need to think about to make sure we have enough equipment on site to do it. Whether pre-rigging is required, what kind of anchors are required, if those anchors are gonna see a potential fall arrest, then what size and to what strength they need to be. So that needs to be listed into the system here or into the plan so that we know what's going on. Now moving into section four, this goes directly with section three. Four is the equipment that's gonna be required to complete this rescue. And this is one of those things where we start looking at general equipment versus rescue rigging equipment. And I just wanna break some of this out. This is Ronin specific. You require a team leader kit. That to us is an orange Nook case with a roller that's been inspected and sealed and ready to go and has got the inspection notice in D4H. You require a Ronin Rescue Basic Rigging Bag. Comes with 200 or 300 feet of rope. Same idea, that is the sealed bag. It's got its inspection tag written in D4H. It is good to go. It is sitting there or, you know, you've pre-rigged with it, whatnot. But we don't get in and say, you know, we've got four single pulleys, two double pulleys, three sets, tandem prussics, 12 carabiners. Now we have the rigging kit, knowing that our rigging kits are inspected, knowing what's in them and everybody's trained on the use of all the parts and pieces that are in there. Any comments on that, Jay, or? Uh, no, guys, you just have to decide what equipment we need. The one thing to keep in mind, though, is the equipment listed in the rescue plan is in addition to what it may already be on site for the entry procedure. Okay? We don't need to relist fan unless you want and need a backup fan. We don't need to list a gas monitor for work-wise. Obviously, if we have an entry rescue, we always use a second gas monitor to make sure 
that the atmosphere is safe for our personnel. Even if we don't hear the alarm going off, we use our own monitor. But if you send me on site and I have a non-entry rescue, the client's made very clearly the project manager, the guys below the manhole the whole time hooked up, you get on site, you confirm that, you don't need a gas monitor with you. So you have to, again, just like the roles, decide what resources you need and you need to make sure they're there. So there's some common ones listed uh, on, in addition to team leader kit. Um, what communication equipment? Uh, gas monitor again, source of light as required. Lockout kit, first aid kit, what level? This goes back up to above. What's, what's the closest medical facility? How also, what scope are we doing? Are we doing rescue? We just need a quick response pack? Or are we doing first aid? And if we're not doing first aid, we don't need a first aid kit there. Harness. Now, I have harness for the entrant. The reason that's there is you may get on site and they say to you, you know what, in the entry procedure, it doesn't say I need a harness or a rope. Well, we've made clear to the client that our people do hook you up as you go up and down the ladder. Otherwise, you need additional personnel on site, which usually they don't want to pay for. So we could be in a position where we're providing a harness uh, to the entrant to go in to make sure we can tie them off. Technically, a harness is a packaging system. It makes our life easy. It should almost be mandated that anyone going to a confined space wears a harness. Uh, under the rescue rigging gear, again, we got the kit like Mark said. Um, artificial high directional, uh, SRL lifeline, rope or cable, and then a bunch of blank spots for you to add more yourself. Now then after that, we have personal protective equipment, PPE. Now, we're of the thought that if it's a non-entry rescue, and we're not going in, any PPE required is already identified in the entry procedure. You shouldn't need additional PPE. Uh, now, however, if we need to go in the space, go in to rescue someone, then we have a few, we have typical PPE that's worn, but we have a few special pieces of kit that we always use as entry rescuers. For example, we always use a hard hat with chin strap. It makes life easy. We're not messing around and it provides a great foundational for light as well. Um, in regards to the rest of the PPE, well, that's up to you guys to decide what does the entry rescuer need. The one thing I want to keep in mind to all of you is that if the guy in the hole is in a half-face respirator in Tyvek, that rescuer ready to enter better be sitting there in Tyvek with a respirator on his knee. I don't ever want to see, and Mark and anyone at Rowan never wants to see us, hang on a second, we'll come get you. We just got to put our tie back on and the rest of our PPE to come rescue. No, you should be ready to go in that space at a moment's notice. It's funny you say that. I took a note as you were saying that. Don't upset the HA or the EP. Basically, that PPE cannot upset what's already written down in the hazard assessment or the entry procedure. If, as Jay said, if it says that the guy's in there on supply to a respirator, then the dude on the outside better be standing there in a supply to a respirator. We're doing that as a minimum. And this is something as the team lead that you need to think about there. The PPE listed in the entry procedure is the minimum. If something's gone on in that space and you feel that we need to be at a higher level of PPE, you can alter this and go, hey, something's gone peak tong here that we weren't expecting. We're going to this. That's your call. Absolutely. And one thing I want to add to that actually is while we're talking about PPE and special PPE, you may come on site and there may be someone in the hole working with asbestos. And you have to have some appreciation about what to do when you rescue that person. 
Is there a decon in place to rescue an injured person? There'll be decon rules in there about how to come out and, and clean yourself off from asbestos, where to wipe yourself down, how to do that. Have you guys thought about that? You bring a patient out, you're gonna lie him down, he's, he's contaminated with asbestos. Well, we gotta make sure that BC Ambulance doesn't come rushing in, you know, maybe have a hose ready and you do a more field level decon, which is okay depending on the severity of the first aid. But us as Ronin, we need to be prepared for not only getting that guy out of the space, but managing them and sure we hand them over in a fashion that's safe to BCAS, whoever that other medical level is. I'm gonna back the bus up a little bit. Jay's obviously got a more advanced level of safety than a lot of guys out there. Um, when we go on a site that has asbestos, your PM's gonna know that they're gonna chat with you. We have to, I mean, it's law. As well, we're gonna get the exposure control plan or the ECP from the prime or the asbestos abatement company on what they're doing and how, what their decon procedures are. We need to make sure that our emergency response dovetails into that ECP and those decon procedures. And this is one of those times where you need to chat with the folks on the ground. We're going into a very large shutdown this week, actually. We'll be there for a few months on a petrochemical. They're doing nitrogen purges. They've got some other really nasty stuff in there that's gonna need to be deconned. And those are things when we're going around at night and having chats, because all we're doing there is rescue. We're not doing standby or anything else. We need to have those chats with those folks and go, hey, what is your procedures to make sure that we're not going to end up with a problem to do our job? So outside of PPE now, we'll move into section five. Section five is the planning and the setup. And this is one thing I really like about this procedure. This talks about before work begins. And so much of what we do is response and we totally miss the boat on Stuff we can do before the work begins. So Jay, a couple of points in here that uh, you want to bring up. Yeah, um, so Mark hit, hit the nail right on the head. You know, it's just specifically in the rescue plan because people are supposed to do this and they don't do it. There's some set steps that we expect you as a team leader to do. And this is almost like a check and balance with what you did before. This is a check and balance that you've read the entry procedure and hazard assessment. There's a lot of reminders in here but we need them in the field. We're changing what we're doing, we're changing sites. You know, um, you may be firefighting yesterday and you're doing confined space entry on a barge tomorrow. You may think it's all just rescue, but they're very different and we can all do with a reminder. So up here in this, in this plan, it says what, what each role must do and makes it very clearly. So first one, rescue team leader reviews the confined space hazard assessment entry procedure, this rescue plan and all applicable required documentation. You should have already done that, it's done. Um, it's part of what you did before. This, this rescue plan says that you've referenced those to create it, so it's all intertwined. Rescue team leader assesses the characteristics and hazards of the confined space as well as the work to be completed, ensures this rescue plan is adequate and the required resources are available. So right away, you should be asking questions. Hey guys, uh, we got a two-man team on, on site today, uh, so we're ready to come in and get you. Um, but to do that, you need to be attached to a line, right? So you need to make sure that's possible. You need to make sure they're willing to do it. Maybe you get on site as a single man. We sometimes send single people out to do rescue. Well, right away, I know I'm the only guy there. I'm the rescue leader, I'm the standby guy, I'm the rescuer, I'm first day I'm doing everything. Then the guy says to me, yeah, I'm disconnecting at the bottom or I'm going outside the cone of happiness. Stop, 
We don't have enough resources. We either need to have a discussion and just deal with the jobs that allow me to stay connected until such time more resources get on site. Rescue team leader needs to confirm the location of the closest medical facility, hospital, the distance and the method and time of travel. Again, making sure you've done that. Roles and responsibilities. Rescue team leader ensures rescue team roles and responsibilities are assigned to competent workers. And we also note this on the entry log and permit. Those are the names. On this rescue plan, we're not putting names. We have enough paperwork to fill out. Uh, we'll be covering this in a, in a soon-to-be future podcast about our new entry permit um, and entry log. And in there, it identifies the roles and responsibilities. The idea is there's one intensive document you need to fill out for an entry. After that, communication. You have to confirm the planned method of communications are effective. There's four communication types we need. One is between the entrant and standby person. How are we going to do that? And there's some suggestions there you circle. How is the standby person going to contact emergency services? If they're on site, they're on site. Great. But maybe it's radio, maybe it's phone. And again, you need to make sure it's effective. If you're relying on cell phone, you know, we all expect you to look at your phone and make sure you got enough bars. If it's Or you're allowed to have a cell phone in the location you're in. Absolutely. If it's questionable or you can, then you need to figure something else out. Once the rescue starts, that's not the time to figure this stuff out. It should have already been done. The gaps in this should be identified before a rescue is needed. Next one is standby person and rescue team. How are they going to talk together? And finally, how are the rescue team members going to talk to each other? Voice, radio, hardline system, other, you decide. After that is the rescue equipment and team member location. Where's the equipment going to be located? Usually for us, it's located beside the hole. In some cases, like the big jobs where we're covering multiple spaces, again, like a big petrochemical facility, it's going to be in the response truck. Where's the team located? At the hole? Or is just one member of the team located and the other two guys are roaming? That needs to be identified. Everyone needs to know that. Then we're going to talk about restrictions for the entry, entrant, and his or her work. This needs to be based on the rescue plan. If the rescue plan is to crank someone out of space on a rope, well, right away, a restriction for the entrant is they must be hooked up to a rope and in the cone of happiness. If they break those rules, then there's a good chance that the resources we have on site will not be uh, sufficient to conduct an effective rescue. And then we have to make sure there's no further harm. So by that, we mean look in the space, look at your line, not your fall line, but your rescue line. And what I mean by that, I don't mean your rope. I mean the path in which you're going to pull that guy out of the space. Is there any obstacles you should note now? Because when that rescue starts, you'll be blinded to some of those and not see them. Okay, next one after that. If an entry internal rescuer is the primary rescue method, a rescuer must be prepared to enter the space. This is exactly what Mark just talked about. We expect for an entry rescue that the guy ready to go in is wearing the same PPE that that entry procedure and hazard assessment requires at a minimum. You may need an additional piece. If an incident happens, the rescue leader is going to have to look and say, what was the incident? Was a new hazard created as a result of the incident and is more PPE required? That's something we can't armchair chief. You need to figure it out on site. But this gives you uh, an opportunity to think about it. And then rescue leader can also write down any additional hazards, controls, comments that they feel that may affect the plan method of rescue. And then there's a, a reminder on what you have to discuss in the tailboard talk. 
There's four things we always talk about in a tailboard talk, and we covered that in a previous podcast, so I'm not going to go into detail into it. Um, but the four things is roles and responsibilities. Everyone should know who's got what role, what the responsibilities are. Too often, we've been on site and the rescue team's sitting over, having the little trail mix on the side of the road, and the toolbox talks over here, yeah, we'll call them if we need them. No, they all need to be involved. So after identifying roles and responsibilities, we're going to discuss how the rescue plan is going to be initiated. Everyone needs to know, how do I get the rescue team on site? And then how the injured entrant will be rescued. It's important you explain this so everyone's aware. It provides a sense of comfort to the entrant working. I know they're going to get me out. Because a lot of times you'll hear an entrant go, I have no clue how they're going to get me out of here. Oh, well, let's go. No, not acceptable. The need for rescue is a hazard and you have a right to know the control for that. So also by explaining how we're going to rescue the entrant, he may say, hey, that's not going to work. Your rescue plan's messed up because I know inside the space. Oh, cool. An opportunity to talk about to ensure our rescue plan is effective. The other part there is the entrant also knows the work. They might be able to say, hey, you know what, your rope's not going to work, I'm going to fill it full of slag, or it's way too warm in there to do this. And those are the types of things that you have to take into consideration. So make sure you're talking to the worker. And finally, after that, just in case the worker didn't pick up on what you said about how you're going to rescue them, you're going to want to reiterate whatever restrictions to the entrant are upon him to ensure the rescue stays effective. Again, the simplest one is we're doing an external rescue, you need to stay connected. Okay, so after that, the rescue leader ensures all the equipment is set up before any worker enters the confined space. In other words, we're ready for rescue right away. And if isolation lockout's required, we expect that entry rescuer to be involved in that lockout. You should not be locking out once the incident occurs. Obviously, there's going to be an assessment. Is there new hazardous energy that's developed as a result of that uh, incident that just occurred? But any hazardous energy that was already identified in the hazard assessment entry procedure that rescuer better be locked out already. One of the things we strongly suggest for most confined space entries is some sort of group lockout where everyone can lock out on the outside. In addition to that, if the fire department shows up and the person's not out of the space yet, which should not happen, boys. Uh, however, if they do show up, then they can lock out easily as well. It's a single point. So that's the last thing to consider. Those are all steps that we need to do before work begins part of the planning stage for a rescue. So leads us into our last section, section six, which is what to do on the initiation of a rescue. And we're not gonna go through this one line by line. The biggest one I wanna bring out of here is, why is the rescue needed? We're there for our professionalism, for our knowledge, for our incidents, you know, that we have done in the past, the experience we have in that, and that team leader needs to ask that question. Why is rescue needed? We need to be able to assess that situation, reassess the hazards, make sure prescribed controls are still in place and effective. You know, I don't know how many sites we've been to where all of a sudden, you know, alarms are going off because people are sucking CO into the space or something all of a sudden, where you show up as the rescue team leader and you're like, this is a simple fix, turn off the Jenny, right? And so make sure that we assess that beforehand control any new hazards, and make sure the rescue team personnel are safe. Make sure that they have what they need to do their job. Now, like I say, the rest of this document gets into, 
the entry rescue and the non-entry rescue, looking at your first aid assessments, providing communication back and forth. And we don't want to pigeonhole anybody too much into this. There are lines in there that are general about what should be done. You know, ensure appropriate PPE is used, worn, and the rescuer as the necessary equipment before entering the space. We don't want to pigeonhole you and say, yeah, you've got to take, you know, a spec pack that's orange, only three feet of green rope and a pigeon, right? Like, because what's going to happen is if we don't have those things, someone's going to eventually get written up for not following their procedures. This is where that whole technical comes back into the technical rescue. And we need to ensure that the people that are doing this task are briefed, understand why they're required, and deploy themselves properly in order to effectively mitigate the situation and bring the person out. And for that, we don't want to pigeonhole you. Jay, any final thoughts on this? Or uh, should wrap it up. We're running 40 minutes for a, a document <laughs> review. Yeah, after that section that Mark talked about, again, we don't want to pigeonhole you, but there's a spot where you're supposed to write out how you're going to do the rescue. Guys, we don't need an explanation of five to one, two to one mechanical advantage in line. We don't care. Rate mechanical advantage. This is being written for trained rescuers who work for Ronin. You know, it's not meant to be written so that any worker can understand it. Okay. Um, the other thing below that is a place to write additional notes, and the very back of the plan is a place for additional notes and a diagram. A quick diagram of your system says a million words. Um, provide one. Now, when you're done this form, this is a legal document. We need to hang on to this, okay? So it needs to come back. If you want to send it in sooner, take a picture of each page and send it in. As you're working with this and filling it out, if you have questions, call us. What we recommend you do is maybe go online and pick a confined space online. Just a picture of one. That's all you need because that's what's going to happen when you walk up. Take this plan out and write a rescue plan based on the picture you see. Get used to this form. That's how we developed this form. We actually used it on site and to see how it roll and so far it's been successful. That being said, it's not written in stone. If we find five people, 10 people, large amounts are having trouble understanding something, we are gonna update the form and we'll let you know about the update. If it's just one of you, then maybe there's a different issue and it's not the form. But we'll figure that out as we go. That so that's not the cone of happiness in the HR meeting. <laughs> yes, that's not the cone of happiness. Anyways, boys, hopefully, and gals, um, hopefully this makes things easier for you. Uh, hopefully it makes things easier for the, the team man, uh, the project managers, um, as well as uh, should work safe show up or something. We will have a consistent product for all of our entries, which is one of the goals here. All right. Thanks a lot, Jay. And uh, if you have any questions with us, gents, gals, fire them off at us. Once again, living document. All of ours are. We're always looking for feedback. Thanks for joining us.